Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Brent McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 556 for January 13th, 2024. Welcome back. This week we are talking to Richard Sexton and Randolph Delancey about New Orleans elegance and decadence. It's a, um, they look at the, uh, the architecture of the city, um, you know, some of the, you know, artistic and de- elegant and decadent places, and uh, both the uh, exteriors, but also they go inside and take uh, pictures. Of. I think, I think this is a second edition that right. did the mm-hmm. first edition 30 years ago, and it's become kind of a standard, and, and this is an updated version, maybe going back to some of the same stuff. It focuses on interiors, furnishings, art collections, gardens, a handful of uh, creative people in New Orleans in the 1990s, which is when they came out with it the first time. Dreamers and urban pioneers, they included bohemian artists, artisans, architects, preservationists, activists, antiquarians, restaurateurs, and teachers, all living outside the American mainstream. They sound like our folks, don't they, Stephen? Yeah. Uh, They tolerated crumbling plaster, Exposed laughs and sagging galleries in exchange for communal fe- communal festivity and joie de vivre. Uh, Richard is returning to the podcast after an earlier visit when we discussed his book, Creole World. And you may remember that from back in uh, 2015. If you don't, this was uh, March. Oh, it was um, episode 96. Boy, Stephen, it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I, uh, this is the one where um, he has a little game, like a, look at a picture and figure out what city that's from because New Orleans has a lot of overlap with Havana and with a lot of the other, um, you know, Caribbean cities. Um, and, you know, sometimes the tip-off is, okay, here's some goats wandering through. <laughs> I remember playing that game. Uh, anyway, we'll be talking to them in a few minutes and welcoming uh, Richard back. But first, this week in Louisiana history. Yeah, so this week in Louisiana history, on January 13, 1818, Noah Ludlow opens the St. Philip Street Theater. And this is one of the early uh, English-speaking theaters in the city of New Orleans. I ask if you happen to know offhand what the language was. Cause, uh, yeah, it's, well, he's the one I sent you the, the link to, what, just this week, in fact, or last week, uh, life as I found it or something. But he wrote a memoir years later about his, you know, life traveling up and down the rivers, you know, staging a place. He, he, he bought the first showboat. He, he or built the first showboat. And what he did, he, you know, paid for it. But he took a keel. He got a guy to take a keel boat and turn it into a showboat, you know, one of these traveling venues, traveling theaters. Very Domain work on him, send it to me, and we'll get it in the queue. To yeah, it's in, your, it's in your messages somewhere. But this is, um, the guy was a real pioneer about, uh, in, in terms of American theater, but really just in entertainment, because those those, those showboats, that book I'm thinking about buying still, because it covers New Orleans and Louisiana some, but they would travel down the Ohio River, the Mississippi River, and I think so, maybe even the Red over here, you know, 
uh, up into, you know, northwest Louisiana and, and south of Oklahoma, northeast Texas and so forth, possibly, though I don't know that. But they would travel those rivers and they would stage entertainments for, for the residents that lived, you know, in those communities along the rivers. And you'd have maybe plays being performed. You'd have some music. There might be some recitations of, say, dramatic monologues out of Shakespeare. Uh, so it was some of, some of those people, it was their only, you know, I, I guess you'd say access or exposure to high culture that, that they had back in those days. So the, the people like Ludlow was providing, or they were providing a real service uh, to, to various, you know, various communities along those rivers. You're correct. This is one we have in the queue. Um, to uh, work on, so um, hopefully at some point it will be, you know, there's just an endless supply of uh, material for us um, to um, to digitize or uh, put in HTML, you know, whatever it is we need to do to it. Hopefully put it into uh, print form, you know, sooner than later, some of it. Yeah, definitely. We, we uh, definitely want to be able to um, have a print version of the Louisiana Anthology, although it'll of course, be much shorter. Okay, so now for this week in New Orleans history, uh, Danny Baker, born January 13th, 1909. Happy birthday. He is an African-American Creole guitar and banjo player, songwriter, composer, singer, author, historian, teacher, storyteller, humorist, actor, and painter, a Jazz Hall of Fame member. Recipient of the National Endowment of the Arts Music Master Award and many others, played Stephen on more than 1,000 records of jazz, swing, blues, bebop, and traditional, and the husband of legendary singer Blue Lou Barker. So, yeah, wow. Regular workhorse. <laughs> That's incredible. I know, right? It makes you realize. And like, <laughs> when I read somebody that great, it makes me realize, oh, have I done anything with my life? But, yeah, you know, you can't do that. Enough for this week in Louisiana. Yeah, so this week in Louisiana, we highlight the crew of Chewbacca's. Uh, this will be Saturday, January the 20th. That's, I guess at 7 p.m. Uh, the nine-member, I'm sorry, the 900-member intergalactic crew of Chewbacca's is a sci-fi-themed Mardi Gras parade as well as a self-described satirical space cult. <laughs> Chewbacca's consists of over 150 distinctive subcrews, each of which pays loving and sometimes satirical homage to the full spectrum of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and everything in between. Chewbacca's is a model of creative collaboration and has grown into a self-sustaining tradition. We do have a website if you'd like to go check it out and follow yeah, this and also go and attend that route. event. Yeah, the website has the uh, route for you, but... I believe it's through both the French Quarter and um, the Marigny, so it's a smaller parade. They don't put the big parades in the French Quarter. It's just two quarters are too tight. But yeah. this is a fun one. I think it's also supposed to be uh, green, like um, you know, people figure out ways to uh, uh, to uh, move it along without com without engines, you know. So uh, that's kind of cool. And also, you know, we've got the Bacas, which is celebrating the. Uh, Alcoholic part, but Chewbacca is a character in uh, Star Wars. So Chewbacca is a combination of uh, Star, you know, sci-fi and Mardi Gras, and I, I think these are uh, folks I would enjoy. I'm going to try to make it if I can. I've I'm seen not... photos of it online here quite a while back, and they're, they're pretty clever. Some of the costumes are just really, oh, really, yeah. you know, really. Uh, I would say even outstanding. I mean, the people are very creative. 
So go if you can. And uh, now for this week's postcard from Louisiana. I listen to Ricky Caesar at the Blue Nile uh, in New Orleans. joining us shortly. We're here today with uh, Richard Sexton and Randy Delahunty. Uh, and a uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And you have a, a wonderful book. I would call it a coffee table book. It's 
Is that what y'all, how y'all conceived it when you were um, uh, putting it together? Well, I think the um, the answer to that is now this is historic. As you know, mm-hmm. the new edition, which uh, you've seen, it's the 30th right. edition. The book came out uh, in 1993 uh, with Chronicle Books in San Francisco. Yeah, I was moving to in advance of, of that. I moved to New Orleans in 1991 from San Francisco. Right, right. So uh, I really didn't have anything on my plate, but uh, I was doing books. In fact, immediately prior, Randy and I had done a book uh, in the Victorian style. And um, so... That was a successful collaboration. I right. A book. And uh, I certainly owed Randy a project because uh, a very long time. And I came in sort of to the, just to do this for it. And uh, so I proposed this book, New Orleans Elegance Index, that's to chronicle as a project that we would do together. Randy, right. I would do... And it's primarily a photographic book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the written part a little bit, but I'll... I'll uh, they did a wonderful job of weaving in the history uh, through the captioning. Yeah, it's beautifully printed. Like uh, it's, a, and also like you have the picture, and then you have the uh, text up to the side of it explaining what we're looking at, which uh, is a format I really like. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, so so and, and of course, sorry, we forgot the title. The title is New Orleans um, Elegance and Decadence. I believe that's it. So, um, oh, yeah, go ahead, whatever you were saying. Um, Richard had started doing the photography as I got into the project. At that point, I was still living in San Francisco, and I came in the to do my research. Uh, um, and my background is as an historian with a particular right. in cities. And New Orleans is a unique American city. Oh, right. Cultural complexity. And it's booms and it's busts. And over time, <laughs> acquired a wonderful inventory of inventive architecture. Richard focused not only on the interior of the house as they were being lived in in the 1990s, but also on the fabric of the city itself, the gardens, the park, right. streets. And at the end of the book, there's four sections to the book. The end of the book is cultural revelry. And it looks right. like a long tradition of not just carnival, but a whole attitude towards living uh, Yeah, have cultivated for centuries. Now. It's a theory of life well lived, you know, like... Uh, 
uh, I guess you'd call it maybe an Epicurean philosophy, which um, doesn't mean necessarily party to your job, but it just means that you should yes, enjoy life. Life is for it, to be enjoyed. Hedonistic more than anything else. Yeah. And, um, you know, de- decadence usually implies, you know, decay, and it usually implies there was a time before when everything was ship-shaped. And New Orleans has always been decadent. We just started there, you know, um, and uh, proceeded from there. Uh, hey, hey, guys, our signal on this end is really bad. I, I hate to do this, but maybe we should uh, hang up and try again and see if the signal gets a little better because uh, it's gotten to be in like five words. But let's uh, hang up and re- restart okay. Thank you so much. I apologize. You call us right back. All right. I think we're working. And we were just talking about there was never really a before New Orleans was decadent. It kind of started out that way. By one definition of the term, certainly. (laughs) Right. The more literary uh, uh, use and uh, literary and cultural but in terms of the visual look and condition in both the the organic sense as well as the cultural sense, well, uh, there's a there's a decadence in your world. Yeah, and things like the minute you stop painting, the mildew starts in your world. It's just it's hot and it's damp, and um, so the literal uh, process of decay is all around us all the time, and it's just a never-ending fight against it. Yes, decadence also means decline, and in New Orleans that has meant a steady loss of population since 19. 19- I know, right? And the period that we were photographing and I was writing. Um, 90s. That was in the wake of the oil bust. Right. Tremendously. But one of the yeah, problems yeah, yeah. that it did was it pushed down the cost of real estate. And artists and creative people could afford to buy to rent uh, historic properties uh, in New Orleans. And they didn't have a lot of money. So their interior decoration, if you will, was an expression style, and it's uh, an artistic and individualistic view, not particularly uh, following fashion trends, uh, very aware of the past. So the interiors of the homes of the artists, which is mostly what photographs, uh, an eclectic um, narrative to them, uh, often they mix, these artists mix their own art with the interior. Uh, so it creates a hole that never existed before. Right, right. Yeah, and New Orleans has been like a great center for art. It's just between the, uh, the aesthetic, the way that it looks, but also the culture down here. But then it, it gets kind of a critical mass when you get all of these artists coming in, um, you know, and, and influencing each other. 
Yes, and that certainly applies to music as well. Uh, and uh, I say food and, and the architecture itself was created by a lot of different cultural influences coming together. Right. Very special. And that was always this, this Creole aspect of the city is, has always been an important part of making New Orleans what it is. And artists uh, need a marketplace. And in the Deep South, uh, there was really only one city in the early 19th century, uh, late 18th century, and that was the port of New Orleans. And it was a prosperous place uh, with a French influence and Spanish later on. Uh, both Latin cultures have a great interest in the visual arts, especially in the Catholic religion. Right, right. It carried through in New Orleans. Uh, because it had artists, it has attracted later artists. Also, what happened in the 90s when there was this depression in the city, it was an affordable place for artists. Yes. You don't need a particular depend on cheap real estate. You don't right. get Bohemia in high-class districts. You get Bohemias at the edge of things. <laughs> where well, my, uh, my best friend from LSU, we were in the... English program there, and uh, her girlfriend, she was on, like, a stipend that they give you when you're a student, and her girlfriend had a, you know, she was on the wait staff at Snug Harbor. They lived in a perfectly nice shotgun uh, house, I think it was in Marigny, if I remember right. So, yeah, you could afford a place like that if you, you know, um, if you had kind of limited income, which they did. Well, that's the, 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 the wonderful thing about that is the uh, kinds of buildings, the architecture that people could afford. These grand uh, Creole townhouses in the French Quarter were divided up into a park uh, in, in the 20th century. And uh, they were affordable. Right, right. New Orleans well, had gotten kind of pricey in the 70s and 80s during the oil boom. But then it had this collapse, uh, and uh, as a result of that, it was, in in my view, it was the most interesting place where you could live for cheap. Right. Yes. Places all over where you could find a cheap apartment or house to buy. But it's well, well I mean, especially coming from San Francisco, even back then. It was probably starting to get, and I'm sure it's nothing like it is now, but, you know, it, it was more, more economical to live in New Orleans. That was very expensive, San Francisco, in uh, the early 90s. Uh, and uh, well, so was Manhattan. So was right. uh, LA. Uh, so many places. There were very few places as intriguing and vibrant as New Orleans, or as cheap as New Orleans. And, yeah, yeah, it, um, it, it, and like you say, it's this one place in the South, and it's kind of an escape from uh, Anglo-Saxon Southern Baptists, <laughs> Presbyterians, you know, uh, um, yes. you know, families could send their artist kids here, and they wouldn't be too far away, um, but they wouldn't be in town either. <laughs> well, cultural 
differences between southern Louisiana, especially New Orleans, uh, is its Roman Catholic history and culture. Yeah, which yeah. Is very visually oriented. And it's quite different from the uh, an-iconic Baptist tradition of the rest of the South. Uh, right. Away from painted imagery. You go into a Baptist church in Alabama or wherever, and you're in a stark white space. In yes, yes. Tradition, <laughs> Both the walls and the people, I might add. <laughs> but, yeah, I have I, I, carried I, through uh, architecture and art um, in a place like Paris or Rome. They develop a tradition. And they attract new people into the system. Right. And so the arts continue. They, they vary, they change, they shift. Mm -hmm. But you have to have something that's drawing people there in the first place. And that's something yeah. the audience has always had. Well, you just look at all, like I say, the Protestants tend to be rather iconoclastic. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in um, North Louisiana. And I remember when I first came down, I worked at this church in Homa. And um, one day we went to another Baptist church there that had once been a Catholic church. And I go in, and the stained glass is still the Stations of the Cross, you know. And, and it's just so unusual. That's the one time I've seen that in a Baptist church. Um, I think it was so that their parishioners would feel more at home, that they didn't just rip it out. Yes. Well, I... I think one thing that's important to recognize is that there is a cultural aspect to all religions. It, it, uh, a lot of people don't go to church, uh, but they, they grew up within a particular religious culture of their parents or grandparents or just the general area, and that has a secular effect. Right. From the, the, and, the church itself. And you know what the Catholics... ...of the traditions here, uh, especially Catholicism and the celebration of Carnival, uh, we developed a culture of ritual. For right, example, right. Town New Orleans has a very elaborate uh, set of clubs and crews, and they have masked balls and pageants and street parades, many of which take mythological themes as their... Oh, absolutely. And there's a taste for ritual and the mysterious, and that feeds artists, and that's why they come here. Yeah. Music as well, because these parades and these balls are affairs where you dance, and so you need a band. And that's how the musicians here supported themselves in the 19th century and still do today. Right, yeah. Play it for the money. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and I, the, uh, I like the part about the rituals. And even if you think you're secular now, you know, I grew up in this, but I'm not that anymore. We were talking a while back to... Uh, singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher, and we asked her, you know, and she grew up in the Catholic Church, but hadn't gone in a long time. Nevertheless, her most popular and, you know, repeated song, the one that, you know, other people sing is uh, We Need a Little Mercy Now, which is very Catholic, right? Going to 
Baptist church, you don't ever hear the word mercy. They talk about grace. Yes, I can. Well, I think that the, the church and the church music, and this really applies, uh, you know, across the aisle, so to speak, in, in Protestant and, and Catholic uh, religion. That's how a lot of people were exposed to music the very first time was in the church. Right, yeah. Well, we had a, a, a guest who did a oh, lot of uh, wedding singing. Oh, Stephen, is that you? I thought I heard Stephen. Um, yeah, we, yeah, I'm, we I'm, on, I'm on mute right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were talking to a guy who uh, does a lot of weddings, you know, as, to make money, right? He's an artist. And, uh, anyway, he um, he does a lot of weddings, uh, Catholic weddings, and I said, um, do you ever sing Ave Maria? <laughs> he said, uh, he had a new sheet music of that because the old one, he would write down the date and, you know, what it was for that he sang Ave Maria and he had filled the thing up and he had to get a new sheet to, uh, sheet music to start over. So, um, you know, if you go to a wedding in New Orleans, you're going to hear Ave Maria. That's just part of it. Yes. Well, I think that in spite of all the things that we're talking about here in terms of uh, art and music and architecture, uh, tradition is also a word that you have to throw in there because New Orleans in many ways is rather old-fashioned. It claims... Yes. And this is part of the, the ritual. For rituals to persist, you have to keep going back to that and repeat uh, across generation. And the Orleans yeah. has been very strong in that regard. Yes. You know, and I think it's part of our genius. You know, I, we were talking to a real-life French person a few weeks ago, and the subject, we were talking about cooking and the degree to which New Orleans food is related to French food. And I asked, well, is rue? I've heard that was from France. Yes, but it's considered old-fashioned and it's what grandmas make, which is, of course, what we want. <laughs> well, uh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. It's a mixture because at the same time, we do have a nouvelle cuisine here. We have a, uh, a more healthy yeah. um, style of cooking has emerged in New Orleans, along with the traditional uh, tradi way. Yes. good, but isn't good for you. <laughs> And the other thing is that New Orleans developed this taste for commercialivity, particularly through carnival, and it's especially good in, in the parade. The New Orleans is the only city in America where I've lived where people the street, and the streets become stages, and the galleries boxes looking down the theatrical displays that take place during the carnival parades. All of that big influence on how people treat the interior of their homes. They bring a bit of that culture and, and movement um, to their domestic setting. We, um, when I was studying English as a student and the history of drama, and they had these wagons they would pull along that each had a tableau. Um, and I think that's where these things come from, you know, they're just 
that old, hundreds and hundreds of years that, you know, th there's newness to the way we do it here, but it's also rooted in something that was very old and very Catholic. Well, the French brought the opera to New Orleans. Uh, the first ballet company in what is now the United States was here in New Orleans. So there's a, a very uh, long-standing interest in high culture and um, activity in the city. Oh, yeah, the um, those were temples, those old, um, you know, old theaters um, of, um, you know, temples of art, I would say. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that's part of the uh, the the determination to live well is um, we're going to have great entertainment, whether it's people parading down the street or whether we're going to the the theater to watch a play or hear a watch an opera or whatever. It was just it was going to be a place with culture because that's what the people wanted. And there was a dark side as well. Uh, yellow fever and the sudden death of entire families uh, led to certain desperation, the gaiety of the carnival season. Uh, the carnival season takes place in winter uh, when the crops are in, uh, marriage arrangements, people are celebrating, and they're also fearing the coming of the next round of plagues and diseases. Uh, this was right, right live in the 1830s and 40s and into the 1850s. Uh, that had something to do with the spirit of the place. People sort of celebrated life while they had it. Yes. Yeah, and I mean... Uh, one, of, one of our old professors used to say that it was a way of shaking your fist at death. Well, I, I would agree with that. And I would also add to Randy's comment that I think in New Orleans, it's one of these places unlike most of America, where affluence and quality of life are not confused with each other. Right. You can have an extraordinary quality of life through where you live, the culture there, the way things are celebrated, and you don't have to have a lot of money. Right. To be a part of that. And you don't have to have a lot of money to be important to the you know community, like uh, you're, if you're a big chief of a, a Mardi Gras tribe, um, it doesn't matter what kind of house you live in. You're a big chief, right? Uh, you, you carry some punch. You, you've got got a kind of weight to your, uh, you know, to that. And it's not just through money, which is the way it is in most of the country. Just yes. give us a billionaire and we'll vote on them. <laughs> you know, that's not it. Bear in mind that that. There's 364 days of the year that aren't uh, Mardi Gras day. And the quality of life is better in New Orleans. You've got great food. You've got great music. You've got really tight, family-oriented neighborhoods um, that that uh, you're not just um, running around with, with a pack of strangers. And yeah. So... That's that's what I'm really. And, and most of it is not. It didn't emerge for 
the sake of tourism, and a lot of it doesn't have a lot of tourism today, like, you know, the second line parades that are out in the, out in the communities, it's mostly local people, you know, and uh, all this, it's great because it's stuff we want, but then the world comes and sees and says, oh, I like that too, but it kind of, it wasn't just set up to be a tourist shop. Well, it, one, of, one of the things it's doing sociologically is it's binding the community together, right? I mean, you, you get all these people coming to these events and these particularly like a parade. Well, people are doing this in community. They're doing it as a group. They're not doing it as individuals. And there's something powerful about that when we do things as groups or as communities. Yes. And I said, a, a few years ago, I was waiting on a second-line parade to get cranked up. We were... Um, uh, it was somewhere above St. Charles, uh, you know, like back in there. And, um, you know, it was just so hot. It was so miserable. Five or six uh, young uh, guys with, uh, you know, the big spray uh, water cannon things. They just they were going up and down and, you know, spraying the water cannon up in the air so we would get a little cooling mist. And, you know, it was it kind of made it, it wasn't just me there. I was with a bunch of people. And, it was kind of a shared experience. Yes, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, really. And I think that those are the kinds of things that are sorely lacking in most communities in, uh, in the country, but not in, not in New Orleans. I mean, one of the big books from the 60s, I don't know if y'all ever came across it, but my dad was a Southern Baptist preacher, and he was always, you know, reading things like this. It was uh, The Lonely Crowd, and it was about how we were packed together in the modern urban landscape, but we were by ourselves. And, you know, you come down here, people still walk, and you stop and talk to whoever you come across. There's that kind of comradeship. Uh, Even if you've never met them before, you're going to have a nice conversation for 20 minutes or an hour (laughs) over long. Right, right. It's you know that's what community is. That's what neighborhoods are, and they kind of cease to be that way in uh, modern, uh, unfortunately. Oh yeah, but there's still some of that in New Orleans, which is great. So, uh, what were some of the big changes that you saw in the things you had researched 30 years ago versus uh, you know the second time around? Well, that's a great question. What changes and what stays the same? Yeah. The 30th anniversary of New Orleans Elegance and Decadence uh, was the chance for me to review a historical essay, which opens the book, and which is quite lengthy, actually. And I covered the last 30 years in three pages, and that included Katrina. And the question oh, is, what changes, what stays the same? There have been many physical changes in the city in the last 30 years. But interestingly enough, and some 25% of the people who live here now have moved here since Katrina, which is rather amazing, shows the power of attraction of this culture. But somehow the spirit of the city uh, continues. Uh, It changes a little bit here and there. Uh, but I would say New Orleans in its uh, in its heart um, has not changed. It still has the same attitudes and values that it had 30 years ago. 
It's more prosperous than it was then, uh, but it's managed to hold on to quite a bit of its spirit. Yes, and I, I would add, the thing, and it's it's kind of a boring thing in some regards, but New Orleans isn't cheap anymore. No, no. In the early 90s, it's still a lot less expensive than a lot of places that you might want to look at from San Francisco to Manhattan. Um, but it is comparably expensive to any number of other cities of its approximate size, you know, metro population. Of well, and we've had a couple of things that, like, um, the loss of houses in Katrina and then the loss of more houses that, you know, we don't want those people moving back so it tear down houses, even though they're perfect in good shape. Um, and then, um, you know, Airbnb hasn't helped. You know, all, all these uh, houses come open for a sale and instead of being another family that moves in, it's an Airbnb investor, and nobody lives there. It's just these. Well, there's. Of course, they're there from two to five days, you know. A couple of aspects to that, too. Uh, a good part of the French Quarter, in terms of its residences, they are pied-a-terres. Um, and that's true in a number of other cities as well, but uh, particularly in the Quarter, increasingly in Marigny. People have bought houses to have a place in New Orleans to visit right. full time. And that's another thing. You combine that with Airbnb, and ultimately there are fewer families raising children in these right. precious 19th century uh, neighborhoods. Yeah. That's been a trend everywhere. That's a worldwide phenomenon. Yes, that's a trend everywhere, and New Orleans is not an exception. Right. Right. It's a sign of the attractiveness of the place. That's a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a city. A city can't just exist on the people who are always there. Uh, it needs uh, revitalization. It needs fresh blood. Uh, the question is, to what degree will that impact the city in a negative way? Um, it's a mixed result. Uh, the city has towards tourism as a major economic activity, um, and that's both good and bad. Um, it brings us business. It brings people here for the first time, and sometimes they'll come and they'll stay, or yeah. <clears throat> they will buy a pied-à-terre. Um, it's very difficult to, to draw the line and say it's all good or it's all bad. It's a mixture. Yeah, can, I mean... Can we, uh, can we say right now, I mean, or is this even applicable, that New Orleans is either poised for a renaissance or maybe is in the middle of a renaissance? I mean, how do you feel about that? In terms of the arts, music, uh, painting, photography, <clears throat> Uh, New Orleans is still alive and and still creative. Um, so I would say that um, it is alive artistically, and it keeps producing new things. Um, music is the most obvious place where we see continued change. Uh, even right. in 
music. There's a particular kind of music here called bounce. Yes, yes, yes. The rest of the country. So it is constantly reinventing these old uh, forms and, and arts. Uh, and I would say Richard, with his photography, is an example of the self-reflective quality of a lot of the art that is coming out of New Orleans. It's either about race or it's about um, the spirit uh, or it's about the past or it's about how the present reflects the past. Uh, there's a self-consciousness which um, feeds the culture and keeps it moving ahead. And, and I would I would add to that. I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word renaissance. <laughs> I think throughout the 20th century and into the 21st year, I think the arts had always been very much alive. In the 1930s, the quarter of New Orleans was an extraordinary bohemia. People like uh, Faulkner. Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote, right? All sorts of of uh, visual artists who were all there, and they all knew each other, and they hung out in bars together, and went to Galata, huh. and uh, they they. So, where the doldrums existed was the economy and the importance right. and all of this stuff that's not directly related to creativity and culture in the usual sense. It's, it's the business, which is very important. Don't, don't, I don't want to disparage that. But that that is where New Orleans has been in the doldrums. And I don't know that it's out of the doldrums in terms of that component. Uh, uh, the, the well, we used to be... All that stuff is lackluster. Is we used to be an industrial city. Like One thing you get from a streetcar named Desire is a peek into the working class household. He's got a little tenement and he's got a job. But, you know, the, the jobs are going away. And they're closing down shipping. You know, after World War II, we, we cut way back on the amount of ships we were building. Um, and um, just finding more efficient ways to move stuff, like the box container. You can just pull a boat up and lo unload those and put them on a truck and off to go. And back in the day, you had hundreds, thousands of guys that would physically have to carry every single thing off the boat and put it somewhere. So, you know, in the waterfront. And that's just, you know, there's that's fewer, not coming back. There's, there's, few, there's less human labor in industry yeah. With every year, there's increasingly less, and the people in charge, if they could get robots to do everything, they would. Well, the move is towards, as you know, services. The tourism is a service industry, the hospitality industry. Um, that is where the city has gone. Uh, that is, right. Uh, supports itself today. Um, but it has all other things as well. It has its resident population and its needs. Uh, medicine is big here. Um, science, not high tech, not quite so much. Um, but it has other other activities as as well as uh, the visitor industry. 
it's yeah, probably, and, probably one of the big, um, I don't want to say anchors, but one, one, one of the biggest single, you know, sources of revenue for the lieutenant governor's office because the lieutenant governor's over culture, recreation, and tourism. And so that means there's going to be billions of dollars, literally, that are going to be flowing through the city and through the port, for that matter, uh, into that particular office and then eventually into the state in terms of the coffers. Um, for people who don't know, Louisiana is kind of closing in very, very slowly on 5 million as a population. I think in the average year when we don't have COVID or <laughs> some kind of thing like that, uh, Katrina, um, I think they're like 40 million visitors to the state. It's almost 10 to 1. And I can't imagine what would happen to our economy if they all just quit coming. Um, because it is such a core part of who we are, this idea that people can come here and enjoy what we have for a bit before they have to go home to live regular lives again. All right. Tourism, tourism is extremely important to the city of New Orleans. Uh, as far as the state as a whole, uh, there are other pockets where it's important there, too. But uh, for New Orleans, tourism is the thing. The bulk of, I, I imagine you, you write the bulk of our um, um, tourism, it seems very likely to be New Orleans. That's where people want to come. Yes, you have to have something that attracts um, attracts people. That is why of the city is, is so important economically. Yeah. And culturally, I remember one day, uh, one night I was flying into New Orleans, and as we kept close, the, uh, the, the flight attendant came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to land in New Orleans. And just a bunch of clapping broke out. You don't get that when you land in New York. Yeah. Tourism evolved for a very specific reason. Had to do with as any place that's a tourist mecca. You know, it has to be an interesting place with good food and music and culture and things that people want to do. And yeah, you have those things. You've got a potential there. Uh, and if you don't have those things, then you can spend millions. But people make them. And it started as far as I can tell. In the 1820s, you've got this um, former general in the Napoleonic War, the uh, uh, Bernard, Prince of Saxe Weimar, or something. He comes. And there's also a uh, Fran Franny Trollope, uh, a proper British woman. She comes that same decade. They just write about you know how well different New Orleans is compared to the rest of the country. Yeah, just kind of expanded from there. What happened in the Deep South is that you had a slow time of the year, the winter. Uh, right. when crops were in. Um, there wasn't much to do on, on the land. And the planters in the lower Louisiana district, mostly the sugar district, would come to New Orleans for the social season. And that's right. the tradition of elaborating carnival and having balls and dances and music. Right. It came with the rhythm of the agricultural life of the um, early 19th century, 1820s, 30s, 40s. Um, it had a 
in the 1850s. The modern tourism industry here dates from the 1880s, and it was the result of the promotion by the railroads, especially the uh -huh. to get people, especially from Chicago and the Midwest, in the winter to come down south during the carnival season. And that started a kind of national uh, movement of awareness that there was something going on here in, in the wintertime and people could come. And this is before Florida, when, for example... Right. Going well, and um, so you're, uh, you're, you're hitting in the mosquito off-season as well, so people aren't as likely to get yellow fever. Well, there's a, there's a famous story I've mentioned on the show a, you know, a few times in the past, but I'm an old uh, pulp magazine fan. In fact, I'm writing a neo-pulp novel, or revising a novel right now as we speak, literally. And the old character, the Shadow, that both of you have probably heard of in the past, the radio character was also a pulp, you know, pulp magazine character, and the co-creator was a guy named Walter Brown Gibson, originally from Philadelphia, but he worked out of New York with uh, Street and Smith uh, Publications, and so Gibson was not at all a fan of flying, which was becoming rather popular by the 30s, and people were talking about being air-minded, which meant that they supported aviation, including flying themselves flying as it was becoming more uh, more affordable for the average person. Well, Gibson wasn't keen on flying, but he loved the train. And so he would hop the train in New York, and he'd come down to New Orleans from New York. And he wrote five of his shadow stories in New Orleans. Uh, and a friend of mine actually is kind of a scholar of the shadow. In fact, I did a, a proof job on the latest book he put out about the shadow. It was a history of the magazine. And I'm trying to get him to come on the show if he's got time and talk about Gibson in New Orleans because he loved to come to the city, and his stories are not particularly tourist. They have a kind of authenticity, because he would actually come to the city and tour not just the border, but the whole city. So the, 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 the settings of the novels, are, they're pretty accurate in terms of what's, what's where and the, you know, the, the culture of the locals and so forth. But he took advantage of the trains, as you mentioned. You know, he was, he was a very, very much a product of that. Riding the rail to New Orleans from, from the Northeast. Uh, no, I just uh, took a train to the city of New Orleans. Uh, uh, and uh, it's, um, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of train travel. And we may be getting more of it in the future. Yeah, finally, so, finally, it? my old hometown, Baton Rouge, is supposed to get the light rail to New Orleans, so let's hope that that, that, that comes through. Yeah. You know? Ultimately, electric cars aren't the answer. The batteries just, you know, take up too much. You, know, you have to dig too much earth up. And really, it's trains for the long term um, that, you know, can be, you know, mass, move masses of people at a good price and, and to do so with energy that is renewable. So yeah, we've got to have more trains. So I wanted to ask uh, Richard a technical question. I imagine 30 years ago, the idea of digital photography may have been around, but I don't think there was much, <laughs> you know, not many people had digital cameras if it existed at all. I remember at Tech Hour, we have a good, good, uh, art program and uh, you would see these photography students sitting around in the uh, student center with a, a sheet of paper, one of these little jeweler uh, things you put in your eye and because uh, they had printed out all of their 
negatives on this tiny, you know, in these tiny little squares. And they were, they're negative, which means they're the opposite of the picture. And also, they're small. So they're having to imagine where they look like bigger and, uh, um, you know, uh, converted over to regular, uh, the way we look at photographs. And, um, you know, they were having to choose because they were students. They couldn't develop everything. So um, what was your process of taking pictures like 30 years ago versus today? Well, it was completely different in, in some ways. In format shell, what was ideal for subjects, which most of the book consists of. So what we had to do for this new edition, when the first edition came out, and I had to scan all the film, convert it into digital format, which is the currency of today, and uh, that was a, uh, a lengthy process, but a necessary process. It kept the images uh, viable. We, we couldn't have done a new edition without the images existing in digital form. So today, I mostly shoot with a digital camera, uh, but uh, using uh, similar uh, technique in terms of composition, lighting, all of that hasn't changed very much. And that that tends not to change. And I would say that um, this 30th uh, anniversary edition of New Orleans and Elkins and Decadence, the pictures are brighter and uh, even better than they were 30 years ago. So this reprint is uh, an improvement uh, visually, I think, um, for the book. Uh, it is remarkable how much photography and printing have changed in a generation. It's a long time in technology. Yeah, no, it's everything completely different today, but it's the same as well. Yeah. The eye, well, con conceivably, it can bring a new audience to the book, I would think. You know, when they, you see these really crisp, vibrant images on the pages, some people might snap up the book and say, wow, I really like the look of that particular volume. I'm going to get myself a copy. People sit up and they look at the photography and they get engaged with it because the pictures are really rich and interesting. Then they read the cap. And then they read the front matter text, which is long in the beginning, sense of context. So there's a process through which uh, people enter the book. Uh, yeah. Pages. And we purposely laid the book out in that way. Yes. And I, I think I would say that it is the, the power, the reach of New Orleans, that draws people to, and that's true of all of photography, if you ask me. It's always about the subject. Right, right. It drives the interest to anyone's photography. It's not about them. It's not about the photographer. Um, it's important that the photographer be good at his or her craft, but it's the subject matter that you have chosen and how you have interpreted that matter that is going to bring an audience to 
Well, I'm a, I do most of the photography for our uh, project, and um, I, I'm not great, but I take a lot, a lot of pictures. <laughs> Eventually, one of them's going to come out, and you're looking back through the, you know, hundred I took this afternoon, maybe there's one, you know. Um, um, and I find it, like, I've got this expensive camera that has a lot of dials, and I actually take much better pictures with my iPhone now because, you know, it's smarter than I am about how to, uh, how to, you know, how long to expose, all that kind of stuff. No, I, the iPhone is the most pervasive camera in the world. Oh, yeah. Now, when COVID started, I was still using the tripod. I went all over the French Quarter a couple of times at night and just took pictures of the deserted streets. I figured there was, you know, and it's not just that there are no cars driving. There were no cars parked. And I figured we'd never get another, you know, shot at something like that. So I wanted to maximize the number of pictures I took. Yes, well, I wonder, we're living in a, in a revolutionary time in terms of the visual um, capturing through photography. I wonder well, whether people have time to look at all these pictures. I go to restaurants and people are taking pictures. Right. Of um, I don't quite understand it. Um, I'd rather they paid attention to their meal. Uh, I see the same thing when I travel in Europe. I went to Trevi Fountain and everyone was taking selfies. And no one was looking at the fountain. Uh, so maybe it's become a barrier to uh, to seeing, whereas the photography in New Orleans and elegance and decadence is not like that. Um, it takes you in to the picture, and it gives you a right. mood. It gives you a mood or an impression. It's an artistic interpretation that makes it uh, captivating to the public. Yeah, because a selfie, by definition, is about the photographer. It's like, no matter where you are, here I am. <laughs> uh, New Orleans and elegance and decadence takes you into places you otherwise wouldn't have access to. Right. Studios and the homes of artists, of creative people. So you see uh, the environment from which art emerges. And that, I think, is <clears throat> it's not a common uh, commercial setting. It's something very individual and personal. I wanted to ask y'all, and I'm glad you brought that up, how did y'all go about the process of making contact with, you know, like, I think I want to go inside that house and take a picture. You know, what was it that gave you the idea that inside there might be something interesting? Then how did you talk to the homeowner? Well, it, it basically, um, it, it was kind of a word-of-mouth process. All right. You're, you really can't tell from the exterior of a house. No. <laughs> what might be inside. So you would be just try to randomly do it that way. But you... You talk to people. New Orleans is a very friendly city. Uh, people know each other. And if you have a particular idea for the type of thing that you're looking for, and what I always told people that what I was looking for, the photograph, one of my 
people who are living in old buildings and interesting. And I did not describe it in any more detail than that. And so based on that, people said, well, you need to talk to so-and-so or, or, this, or that person. And then you would, this is before the Internet, you know, get their phone number, call them up, tell them you're working on a book. They come over to see if your house may be something that, that we could use. And um, so when you find one that you like, uh, you know, those people know other like themselves. And they'll say, oh, go, go down the street. Um, they've got a house, too. I think you might like it. So it was a long process of, of um, coming across these. Meantime, when I was roughly doing that, I was uh, focusing on the public face of the city, the streetscapes, uh, the, the oak-lined uh, avenues, uh, the celebration. Right. All that kind of thing, because I didn't, didn't want this to be just interiors. It needed to really give a sense of the city and what the city was like, to, to, to live in it, what it's like behind those shuttered windows and doorways, but also what you see when you walk around the quarter, when you, right. you ride the streetcar down St. Charles Avenue. And a project like this greatly expands your Rolodex. You know, whatever app you have instead of a Rolodex. Stephen and I have been doing the project since 2012 and the the interviews, the podcast since 2013, we've got, you know, somebody on, you know, in every, I don't know about every city, but every region of the state and all the different arts and historians and stuff like that. So, you know, once you know a few people, it helps you to meet others. That, that's, that's true. And that's yes. kind of how it happened here. In New Orleans, there's a network. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm community, uh, people know what other people are doing, and they're interested in what other people are doing. Uh, yeah. And you meet a few, they'll introduce you to others. And a favorite sport in the Deep South is to introduce you to other people that you might like. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Cocktails, and then you can... <laughs> I was here for a week, a few years ago. I kind of almost live here now, about half the time, but back then it was in a hotel room, and I got an invitation, I guess via Facebook, but one of the smaller museums was having a soiree, and it was like, uh, you know, bring a dish, and there's no way I could cook, but I went to Michael's Seafood on Jefferson and got a few pounds of uh, boiled shrimp and bought a pound of ice, and one of those red bowls you get at Walmart, and it was just, you know... It, it was you know, really easy to do. Uh, and when I got there, everybody else had bought vegan food. You should have seen those people diving into the shrimp. <laughs> it was like, well, finally, something I can eat. Um, but, yeah, you know, you, you meet people at a place like that. Yes, you do. And uh, I, I, I just wanted to say, due to a, uh, you know, I have a, uh, a 
dental appointment later. Oh, okay. Well, so, thank you guys well, so much for that, coming on the podcast. This has been great. Yeah, but if you've got some wrap-up questions, uh, we, you know, uh, we'll I had I had one more question, and that is like, uh, as you get into a project like this, um, what you don't realize, like thirty years. Guys, that's longer than any of my marriages. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's a commitment to be around this person. So be sure you can, like, Stephen and I have been doing this for, uh, 2011, 12 years now, you know. Um, and, uh, so it's good that we're able to get along. Uh, <laughs> well, it is a fascinating thing to, uh, to have a 30th anniversary for a book. It's very rare in the United States for this. Uh, yeah, that type of book. I and mean, for me yeah. as a historian, uh, to be able to go back over an essay that I wrote 30 years ago. And right. Well, it has stood up, uh, what little polishing it needed, and just a few very minor corrections. Um, I was very pleased that it mostly holds up very well. And the three pages that I added uh, to the back of the essay, over the last 30 years and, and the big hurricanes, it was interesting for me um, to see that I think I did catch something important about the city and the market. People absolutely these assets. And they think gonna, that it speaks uh, for, and that's a great success when a book can manage to do that. Yes, and uh, so one more time, the title is New Orleans. Uh, Elegance and Decadence, and I guess you can buy it at any bookstore online. Um, and these make, in addition to your own copies, these make great gifts. They're beautiful, you know, and anybody would be, even people that don't usually read, but you never buy a novel for, everybody likes pictures. <laughs> well, I think that the, the primary narrative is with the visuals. Yeah, uh, yeah. Book. But, if you do sit down and as you look at the photographs, you read the little snippets of text, which are extended captions to the photographs, at the end, you will know about New Orleans in ways yeah. you didn't know before. So I Absolutely. think one of the things that has made the book successful and why it's still in 30 years later is because it, it, it's very authentic. Mm -hmm. uh, these are these are real interiors. These are the way that they look, the way that they're lived in. It's it's not all styled up. Um, uh, I'm not using any of these places as stage set to to do anything with uh, in that way. Which a lot of the a lot of the uh, magazines and books about architecture and design are are doing precisely that. It's, right. Right. So I saw one picture online. Somebody was holding up a picture of the room that they were in, and then you could see the room <laughs> behind it. And you know, it was just what you know, like you say, it's the room they live in. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. It, it's very real in that way, and it's, it's these places are very culturally to uh, New Orleans. You see that. You see in these interiors. And in courtyards and and uh, yeah. gods, people immediately think New Orleans when they see it. Right? Yeah, it has that feel. And so, um, 
that's I think that's a big part of my festival uh, for such a long period of time. And what well, continues to be, these these places are kind of timeless, and New Orleans right. is timeless. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and uh, so um, that's what it's all about. And, and in terms well, of there was a reporter named Catherine Cole who describes sitting in the French or in the French market drinking coffee and watching the city go by and it could have been written today it could have been written 200 years ago you know it's just that you know that tradition has just been held on to for that long yes i mean i think that's 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 one of the things i certainly love about new orleans and that's what you think the people that live here love to come to visit and I mean, they they appreciate the uh, the fact that the past is very much alive here, and there's a sense of continuity. And they're modern things. Uh, Pope Jen here. Uh, it's not that, uh, that everybody's running around in costumes. Very real place that has these strong, but to the past, that most people don't have. Was it Faulkner who said uh, the past isn't dead, it's not even past? Um, um, and, yeah, uh, again, it's that eternal now, right? I mean, it's it's always with you. It's always, it, there's there's a certain unchanging quality about the city. William Faulkner, and he did spend time in New Orleans. As well he, as edited that, he edited that, that little magazine, The Double Dealer, while he was down there. Mm-hmm. Wrote his first book here, and he lived on Pirate's Alley. He had an apartment on Pirate's Alley. Oh, my gosh. I'm so jealous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's just great. Well, I so appreciate you guys coming on the podcast. Wish you the best for this reissued edition. And uh, I'm going to encourage all our listeners to go out and get a copy, because it's definitely worth it. It's not very expensive, either, not for a... For what you know, a coffee table book. And look, and look you, in look in your local the local bookstores where they they have sections of, of local interest or Louisiana interest. That's where it. Was yeah. Used. Yes. Right. Uh, well, you take care. Yes. Uh, thanks for having us on the program. And yeah, thank you. And uh, enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, great. I did yeah. too. This was such a fun talk. Y'all take care. Okay. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. We want to thank Richard for coming on the podcast uh, and um, coming back on the podcast and um, um, being, uh, you know, uh, uh, making himself available to talk about this, him and uh, Randolph uh, Dillahenty, about their um, book on um, decadence and elegance and decadence. We would encourage you to buy this. This is a real coffee table book, Stephen, you know, uh, got beautiful, beautiful pictures, and um, just um, and then the research that they did. That they it's not just the uh, pictures, but then they tell us a little bit about what this means. I, I really like that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, it's um, kind of a narrative with the you know with all those photos and so forth, and and it and it's I don't know how do you know how common it is to have a book like this that survives to a second printing I, I, I would think it's not all that common but i don't i don't know i'm thinking a 30-year gap is a lot <laughs> like uh you know that they're probably not a lot of especially coffee table books i mean maybe some i don't know uh, I, 
it seems like it would be easier just to reissue the first edition. But uh, this one, you know, you, I mean, you think 30 years ago, this was before Katrina, you know, it's a lot of changes. So this gives them a chance to go back and see, okay, what is still the same and what is different? And I think that's a very valuable before and after kind of thing. Because this was like 10 years before Katrina, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's in the 90s. I mean, when they would have done yeah. the original. So. so maybe 15 years. Anyway, it's uh, it's been a long an eventful gap between these two. So good to come back and see, okay, what's, what's, what's the status today? Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Richard and Randolph for joining us this week. Uh, do go out and, 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 you know, get yourself a copy of that book, if you're, particularly if you're into art, uh, you know, as, as the book's uh, contents say, art, uh, uh, furnishings, interiors, etc., gardens, you know, do go find a copy of it and, and read it. Go check it out at your library. And, and if you decide to, you know, maybe buy a copy and give it away, you know, give it away to your library. But again, uh, thank you, uh, Richard and, and Randolph, for uh, speaking with us this week. And we thank you for doing this, this second edition of, of, of your book. We also want to thank all of you for listening in. And we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.